Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. And frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, you know when there's a holiday at hand, I love to celebrate with those I love the most. You, the listeners. So, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. But may I suggest making it tequila? Hint, hint. (laughs) Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say, Mayo? That will be a single shot. And every time I say, Cinco? That's going to be a double shot. That's right, my heathens. We're bypassing our normal topic, and we're going to be talking about a very important issue for today, Cinco de Mayo. (laughs) Now that we've got the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, today, we're celebrating May the 4th be with you. Until Cinco de Mayo, then you may experience Revenge of the 6th, especially since it's Taco Tuesday, right? So if you haven't already, come to the dark side, my darling, because we have tacos. (laughs) But seriously, we can't talk the fifth without bringing up the best tequila-induced holiday, Cinco de Mayo. So today is my little love letter to all things taco, tequila, and a little Mexican ghost story just to keep us on track. So put on your sombrero, grab some tacos, And join me in today's Dark Enigma, and the history of Cinco de Mayo, and a side order of the chilling tale of El Cucuy. Here in the States, we get pumped up for Cinco de Mayo. Well, actually, we get pumped up for any holiday that includes alcohol. It's really just one more excuse for us to drink margaritas and eat tacos shamelessly. Duh, right? But the reality is, Cinco de Mayo is a holiday with deep-seated roots in Mexican history, roots that many of us may not know. So, let's jump right in and start the Cinco de Mayo celebrations with a little history of why this day is so goddamned awesome. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. Oh, I'm sorry, did you think it was? Sorry, you just got schooled, because it's not. Contrary to what some might think, the Mexican Independence Day is actually September the 16th, not May the 5th. The 16th is remembered as the day the Mexican War for Independence began against the Spanish government in 1810. For this reason, Cinco de Mayo is not nearly as popular a holiday in Mexico as El Grito de la Independencia is in September. 
So, sorry guys, Cinco de Mayo's not Mexican Independence Day. What is it then? Okay, well, it's actually a celebration of a historic battle where the little guy actually wins. And it's a far more obscure battle. May the 5th is the anniversary of the Battle of Puebla in 1862, during which the guerrilla troops of General Ignacio Segun Zaragoza fought off Napoleon's troops during the Franco-Mexican War. They weren't supposed to win this one. Their army was so much smaller, but guess what? They did. It was a real-life David and Goliath story, and guess what? The world has been celebrating ever since. And who cares? There's tacos, right? The popularity of Cinco de Mayo in America? Well, it was a political move, guys. Sorry. The first people to celebrate Cinco de Mayo were Mexican miners in Southern California in 1863. Thanks, FDR, for gifting us with the wonder- wonderment that is Cinco de Mayo. That's right. President Franklin D. Roosevelt enacted something called the Good Neighbor Policy, which is meant to improve relations with Latin American countries and communities. And it was under this policy that Cinco de Mayo began to pick up steam in the 1950s and 60s, eventually becoming a national holiday. Drinking incessantly to improve international relations? Check, check. Rock on, FDR. And like most things American, people thought holiday equals let's drink. (laughs) And over the years, Cinco de Mayo has morphed into the wonderful party day that we know it is today. But one Arizona town, because there also has to be one of those. Anyways, one Arizona town celebrates with Chihuahua races. Ay, Chihuahua! (laughs) The town of Chandler, Arizona has your typical Cinco de Mayo celebrations. Food, check. Music, check. Parades, check. Dancing, check, check. And, you guessed it, Chihuahua races. That's right, I said Chihuahua races. Townspeople enter their Chihuahuas into this race. Well, just think horse racing on a much smaller scale and a very stranger scale. And they even receive a large cash prize if their Chihuahua is the fastest. Is it strange? (laughs) You betcha. Is it weirdly adorable? (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what? You can do it, you little guys. I love you, Chihuahuas. Cinco de Mayo is actually the biggest day of the year for avocados. (laughs) Because guacamole. What else can I say? Although guacamole and avocados in general is still extremely popular anyways, May the 5th is still the biggest day for guacamole sales. The California Avocado Commission reports that 87 million pounds of avocados are purchased just for Cinco de Mayo celebrations. That's a whole lot of guacamole. We all know that it's important to eat fruits with potassium, but seriously, that's just bananas. You see what I did there? That was funny, right? I hope you laughed. And, of course, Canada, well, they celebrate Cinco de Mayo in their own very unique, very Canadian way. Because Canadians being, well, Canadian... They celebrate Cinco de Mayo in their very own uniquely Canadian way by falling out of planes on purpose. Yeah, you heard me. 
Vancouver, British Columbia celebrates Cinco de Mayo with an annual skydiving boogie. That's right. Say it. Skydiving boogie. (laughs) There should be a song that's called skydiving boogie. I'm just saying. Throwing yourself out of a plane is certainly one way to celebrate. Because of its commercial success, other countries like Malta, Australia, the Cayman Islands, and Canada celebrate Cinco de Mayo as well by jumping out of planes. Canada, you guys are doing something very, very right with this holiday. I love it. So who has the biggest Cinco de Mayo celebration? (laughs) That would be Los Angeles. You got it. City of Angels. Prepare yourself for crowds or crowd surfing. LA's celebration is even bigger than the festival in the, the Mexican city of Puebla. And that's really saying something. The party is called Fiesta Broadway and has been a huge celebration since the 1990s. Most major streets in LA are blocked off to host hundreds of thousands of people celebrating Mexican heritage with food, music, dancing, and crafts. I wonder if Corona's going to block it this year, because I know it blocked it last year. Let's hope they don't, because you know what? Alcohol's supposed to kill anything bad, so drink more tequila. And on that note, did you know that tequila was once thought to be the nectar of the gods? And I know I have a thing about tequila, but that's because I get into a lot of trouble when I drink tequila. That's why I think that tequila is, you know, from the devil. But more more of how I act on it. So tequila's not that bad. It's really how I act. But that may still be a fact because it is the nectar of the gods. Not surprisingly, 47% of all drinks ordered on Cinco de Mayo are, you guessed it, margaritas. Tequila sales easily double within the week leading up to this infamous holiday. But long ago, this beloved Mexican alcohol couldn't be enjoyed by all Mexican people. What? That's right. Centuries ago, Aztec priests used to make a milky, beer-like drink from the agave plant called pulque. Only the priests could consume this precursor of tequila, which after a steep decline is slowly beginning to make a comeback. I'm just saying, you know what? Tell me I can't have tequila. Damn it, I'm going to want it. Well, the interesting fact about Cinco de Mayo is the Battle of Pueblo placed a foreign emperor in Mexico. Yeah, his perfectly primped beard was intimidating to all Mexicans. Although Mexican troops won the initial Battle of Puebla, French troops came back strong and eventually took over Mexico for a short amount of time. They instituted Emperor Maximilian of Austria, who was essentially a puppet through which European nations could control Mexico. The story of Maximilian is one shrouded in legend. Eventually, those loyal to the general Ignacio Sigun Zaragoza rose up against Maximilian, capturing and executing him and his fancy little primpy beard, and all of his generals. But the legend goes that Maximilian survived the execution and made his way to the States by a secret U.S. society. Think the Freemasons, only more secretive. I'm just going to say it. Did he use a coyote? (laughs) I'm just... I'm so bad. I know I'm going to hell. Don't don't send me emails telling me I'm going to hell. I've already got a day job in hell. So don't tell me about it. 
And just so you know, 10 U.S. states consume more tequila than all others combined. And yes, I have lived in at least half of them. (laughs) And those badass states include New York, Ohio, Georgia, Florida, Illinois, Colorado, Nevada, California, Arkansas, and did you really think I was going to leave out Texas? Sorry, they're the last one. Make your Cinco de Mayo plans accordingly. You know this shit can get dangerous. You've been warned. And just for those of the those of you out there that are my foodies, did you know that mole poblano is the authentic Cinco de Mayo dish? If you want to do Cinco de Mayo right, put down the taco. I know that's a sacrilege. <laughs> like it's hard to even say. But the traditional dish eaten in the town of Puebla on their big holiday is mole poblano. It was invented in the late 17th century. Mole, if you don't know, is a thick sauce made with chocolate, chili peppers, and other spices. Traditionally, the sauce covers succulent turkey legs. And you know what? It is freaking delicioso. So go have some tonight. Go to your best Mexican restaurant and order some mole poblano. You'll love it. You can thank me later. And you know what? Last but not least, beer sales generate around $658 million just from Cinco de Mayo. And you know what? If you want to be legit, you should be calling it cerveza. So if you're not a margarita person, you can contribute to the nearly $700 million of sales for the beer industry in the week leading up to Cinco de Mayo instead. Surprisingly, this number is only the seventh largest holiday revenue for the beer industry. I have a feeling that St. Patrick's Day is in there and the 4th of July might have something to do with it. Although, I'm pretty drunk around Christmas time, so could be any of them. But after Chicano activism revived Cinco de Mayo in the U.S., it was only a matter of time before brands started using the holiday to make money. In the 1980s and 90s, beer brands like Corona turned Cinco de Mayo into a commercial holiday. Although the marketing was initially aimed at Mexican Americans, the commercialized Cinco de Mayo gradually caught on with, well, anybody who liked to party. And unsurprisingly, this led to some disturbing trends, like Cinco de Mayo costumes based on stereotypes. It also led the holiday to become associated with heavy drinking, which was never a big part of the celebration historically. Downing beers and tequila shots is a pretty far cry from what Cinco de Mayo is actually all about. However, when taken as an opportunity to learn more about the history and culture of Mexico, the holiday is a marvelous thing to celebrate. Sure, outside of Puebla, where the historic battle was fought, Cinco de Mayo isn't that big of a deal in Mexico. Then again, in some ways, Cinco de Mayo has been linked to the U.S. from the very start. If you want to celebrate this year, there are lots of ways you can do it from home. You know what? Order takeout from your favorite Mexican-owned restaurant, make a playlist of some wonderful Mexican music, or have a movie night dedicated to classic Mexican films. I can think of a few from Robert Rodriguez that would fill the bill. Okay, now that you have been properly schooled on Cinco de Mayo... Let's jump into just a little bit of scary with a chilling tale from our Mexican brethren, the story of El Cucuy. 
In the year 2001, Cinco Puntos Press, out of El Paso, Texas, published a bilingual children's book, El Cucuy, written by Pennsylvania-born Joe Hayes. Hayes had lived in the American Southwest since his childhood, and he is the consummate storyteller and collector of legends and folktales. It was Hayes' book that finally brought El Cucuy out from under the beds and out of the dark closets of Mexican children's rooms and into the light of day of the English-speaking world. What's been called the Mexican version of the boogeyman has been terrifying children throughout the Hispanic world for centuries, perhaps even thousands of years. While few think El Cucuy is based on a real creature, some may be surprised to learn that the creature's origins go back to prehistoric Celtic Europe. So, what is El Cucuy? What does it look like? And what purpose does this legend serve? Well, we start with the story of El Cucuy, as related by Joe Hayes in his groundbreaking children's book. In Once Upon a Time fashion, there was once a man who lived in a small Mexican village with his three daughters. His wife had died, and the man was left to raise his three girls on his own. The youngest of the three daughters was very helpful around the house, recognizing that without their mom around, their father was left to spend 12 hours a day working along with all the other responsibilities of two parents. The older sisters saw their younger sister as somewhat of a chump or a goody-two-shoes. The older girls were always out playing or doing whatever they wanted, while the younger girl was stuck doing the chores. When the younger girl pleaded for help from her sisters, she was met with laughter and derision. One day, the younger daughter went to her father to plead with him to force the other girls to help her. But that only made matters worse for her. The older sisters began to sabotage the younger girl's work, throwing ash from the fireplace on the newly cleaned floor or tying into Knott's fresh laundry drying on the clothesline. The father, tired of the antics of the older girls and their attitude of overall laziness, threatened to call El Cucuy to come and get them. The older girls thought this to be very funny. They had heard of this creature before. It was described as being tall and furry with red eyes and a peculiar red ear that was bigger than its normal ear. It was with this big red ear that the creature could hear misbehaving children, some said from a distance of 250 miles. This snarling creature would abduct bad children, take them to his cave in the mountains, and eventually eat them and this served as a lesson to the young children. The older sisters, of course, mocked the fairy tale and didn't take the father's threats seriously. When the father heard of his daughter's continued bad behavior, he went outside and called out to El Cocuy by name. This made the two older girls even more irreverent, and they continued to make fun of the situation and, tor and torment their younger sister. Then, townsfolk reported seeing a large, upright, hairy creature enter their little village. The creature made a beeline to the house of the widower and snatched the two older girls. El Cacuy swiftly took the girls to his mountain hideaway, a dark cave with a deep pit. He put the girls in the pit and fed them one tortilla per day, enough to barely keep them alive. 
After about a week, a goat herder, tending his flock on the mountain, went to rescue a goat of his that had its hoof stuck between two rocks. After the goat was freed and finished bleeding for help, the goat herder heard the wailing sounds of the two girls inside the pit. The goat herder entered the cave and rescued the two, taking them down the mountain and back into town. The disobedient daughters were returned with their father and little sister and begged the man never to call El Cucuy on them again. The father never did because the girls never gave him a reason to. From then on, the girls helped out around the house and stopped being mean to their little sister. As a postscript to this story, all three girls eventually married and had families of their own, never leaving the area. Today, that little Mexican town is home to the great-great-great-grandchildren of the three sisters, and it is known throughout Mexico for having the most polite and well-behaved children anywhere in the country because, well, no one wants El Cucuy to return. Now, there are many variations to this story, and in various versions of the legend, El Cucuy can be a hairy wolfman-like creature, as in the Joe Hayes retelling, or an old man, a ghost, or even a large reptilian being. In some stories, El Cucuy is cloaked, much like the Grim Reaper. In other stories, he is carrying a skull or something like a jack-o'-lantern that resembles a skull. Yet in other stories, El Cucuy is a severed head. The lack of a uniform description of the creature and the various ways in which the legend is told suggests a very ancient and diffused origin. The only thing that all of the El Cucuy stories have in common has to do with their use as a deterrent or punishment for bad behavior of children. The overall message, like the boogeyman of the English-speaking world, is that if you misbehave or disobey adults, El Cucuy will come after you and take you away, and the consequences are severe. In some parts of the Spanish-speaking world, including some parts of the American Southwest, El Cucuy is known as the Coco, or Coco Man. Language historians have traced the origin of this word. Kokoi from Koko has its origins in the Iberian Peninsula, specifically the country of Portugal, and the far northwestern province of Spain, Galicia. The language of Galicia, called Galego, which is similar to Portuguese, shares a word with that language, Koko. This word was used to refer to a ghost with the head of a pumpkin and is colloquially used to describe a head. Linguists believe this comes from a proto-Celtic word, croca, or crocoa, meaning head. In some of the remaining Celtic languages of Europe, which are also on the Atlantic fringes of the continent, we still see variations of this word. In England, the Cornish language of the far southwestern part of Great Britain has the word krogan, meaning skull. Breton, or Old Celtic language considered severely endangered by UNESCO and still spoken by less than 200,000 people in the far western part of Brittany on France's Atlantic coast, the phrase Krogan Arpen also means skull. The language history of the word Kukui may point to an older Celtic origin of this legend, and the story may have survived in the remaining Celtic communities on the Atlantic fringes of Europe like Portugal and Galicia and even survived their absorption by encroaching Latin-based cultures. There's no doubt that this story goes back thousands of years.
The first written record of what would become El Cucuy is found in a book from Portugal dating to the year 1274 called Livro 3 de Doceses de Dom Alfonso Tercerio, or in English, Book 3 of Grants of King Alfonso III. The Cocoa is described as a malignant sea creature. There are other sources from hundreds of years ago in the Iberian Peninsula describing the coco or coca as a large semi-aquatic reptile with spikes and a shell like a gigantic tortoise. The cucafera was described this way and survived on a daily diet of three cats and three bad children. Because, you know, I'm not going to even say it because seriously it's funny. Anyways, in the 1400s in the area of modern-day Portugal and some parts of modern-day Spain, the coco was often symbolized by something representing a severed head. A hollowed-out vegetable was often carved with a scary face to represent the creature, or a severed head may have been carved of wood or fashioned out of clay to scare children to believe in this cucuy prototype just gonna say sounds kind of familiar to something we do in Halloween time. Our very word in English coconut comes from the Portuguese legend of the severed head of the coco and this fruit was so named when it was first encountered by the ship's captain by Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama in the late 1400s. Some stories of El Cucuy or the coco have the creature wearing a cloak like the Grim Reaper the pan-European harbinger of death. This element may come from yet another old Iberian source. In old Portugal, as part of the celebrations for Holy Week called Procesio dos Passos, a hooded man heads a procession to announce the death of Christ. The man was either called Cocoa or Faracoca, and the word Coca was also used to describe the hood the man wore. Also in Portugal, the hooded people called Faracoca were responsible for gathering the remains of people who were recently executed. There is an interesting tie-in here between some of the legends of the cloak-wearing kukui and those involved in morbid aspects of the Catholic religion. This heavily Portuguese legend probably came to Mexico in the late 1500s during what has been called by historians the Union of the Crowns. Between 1580 and 1640, Spain and Portugal were united under the Habsburg Spanish kings. Not only were the kingdoms combined, so were their overseas empires. The colony of New Spain saw much Portuguese immigration during this period, and early versions of El Cucuy legend probably came off the ships along with the new passengers from Portugal. Like legends do, the Portuguese coco slowly changed to meet local conditions. It was no longer so reptilian. The cloak was optional. The Mexican cucuy has more of a tendency to be a large furry creature with fangs and claws, much like the shape-shifting nagual of the ancient Aztecs and their subjugated peoples. With the recent increase of immigration from Latin America to the United States, the story of El Cucuy has officially entered new territory. It will be interesting to see what will happen in the upcoming decades as this ancient Iberian legend becomes Americanized. Throughout its many changes before and after its arrival to the New World and across geographical areas, El Cucuy has never deviated from its main purpose, to terrify children into obedience. 
modern-day parenting experts caution adults from frightening children with stories like El Kukui and claim the use of such scary stories to get compliance from the young is a form of mental child abuse. Screw that. <laughs> Sorry. In spite of this, there's no indication that El Kukui will be killed off anytime soon. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about El Kukui. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for a future show or you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and need somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. Somebody send me some tacos. See you, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs>